The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Appreciate that good prayer. And ask that you continue to pray for me this morning as we try to wrap up this morning our study on the book of Ruth. I'm so uh, desirous of your prayers that I might be able to preach to you because there are times more than others when I feel that need um, and the feebleness of the earthen vessel in which the treasure is contained. So I, I ask that you continue to pray for me. Uh, last time, be two weeks ago, when I preached here uh, on the book of Ruth, we talked about from the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth about Boaz, who is a type of Christ and how that Boaz was a near kinsman to Naomi, and therefore a near kinsman to Naomi's son, Malon, who was the husband of Ruth, the little Moabitess woman. You know the story, and I, I won't rehash the whole story here, but just let's remind ourselves that Elimelech, who was the husband of Naomi had left Bethlehem, the house of bread, in a time of famine and had gone to the land of the enemy. He'd gone to a place he really should never have gone, should never have abandoned the house of bread, the house of God, Bethlehem, in time of famine. And, and, and that was a good lesson for us that, that we, don't, we don't need to abandon the kingdom of God, the place, the place where we can be fed just because there's some famine going on, famine of fellowship, famine of preaching, famine of uh, numbers, uh, whatever it may be, don't abandon it, stay in the kingdom because we read about Boaz, uh, uh, a man who did stay, who was faithful, who became a mighty man of wealth, even in spite of the famine. Uh, we also, I think, pointed it out, but if I didn't, I pointed out today that this was a time of the judges. This was the time when the judges ruled in Israel, when every man did that which was right in his own sight, and a lot of times, you know, what was it that, uh, that caused the famine? It was the withholding of rain. That's what caused, they'd plant their crops, but the rain didn't come. And they, well, what, what did God tell them in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Numbers, and all throughout their journeys to the land of promise? He said, if you do wrong, I'll withhold the rain from you. So often the famine in that day was actually a judgment of God, a chastening of God upon his people. And Elimelech, rather than submit to it, he left and he went over to the land of Moab and his two sons, Kilion and Malon. Now, let me just stop here. I don't think I pointed this out when I preached the beginning of the book of Ruth, but these names are interesting and can be important. They named their sons Kilion, which means pining, pining away. And they named the other one Malon, which means sick. Now, some of you have got a little baby here today, and I'm so glad you didn't name that baby Piney or sick. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Uh, pining now, you know, that'd just be a sick now. That's old sick now. How's she doing? She's sick, you know. How can you, what do you expect? You named her sick, she's going to be sick. So some terrible names here, but they mean something, and we'll get to that kind of in a minute. Um, I think that's... Just another interesting tidbit, a little morsel God gives us. But you know the story. They died in the land of Moab after they had married. And of course, Ruth came back with Naomi. Naomi was 
down on God. She was bitter. She changed her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Mara, which means bitter. And then we came down through and we saw how God in His wondrous, merciful providence brought that little Moabitess enemy of God from a land that was an enemy of God to the very field of Boaz, the near kinsman, to the very place her hap was to light upon that field. <laughs> and I believe that's the Lord speaking tongue in cheek. He, he's saying, yeah, he's kind of a wink when he says that. Her, she just happened to go here. No, she didn't just happen. The Lord providentially led her. We don't believe God predestinated it. We don't believe in the predestination of all things, but we do be, believe in the providence of God. And he brought her to that place. And this man recognized her. He saw her not because she was beautiful, not because she was dressed in the, clear, in the newest fashions or she was showing a lot of skin and that sort of thing. No, he saw her because she was working and laboring in the kingdom of God. A little humble servant who realized she had no claim upon, the, upon any of the promises of the kingdom. And Boaz saw her. And Boaz decided he would do the part of a near kinsman and he would do, as he says in verse uh, uh, 11, I believe it is, he says, uh, no, I'm sorry, it's over in, in verse uh, uh, 13, he says, I will do the part of a kinsman to thee as the Lord liveth. And what he did was, he said, I'll do all that thou requirest. <laughs> now, we saw that Boaz in chapter 4, as we read through it, we saw that Boaz was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, our near kinsman, the one who was near and kin to us. He was able and he was willing to redeem us. But there's something in there that I want us to really focus on. I mentioned it last time, but what I want to really focus on this morning is the nearer kinsman. Because you see, in this book, in this story here, don't forget, there was a nearer kinsman. As we read about this story that is a real story, a real account, there was somebody nearer in kin than Boaz to Ruth. Boaz, who is our type of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our near kinsman, our kinsman redeemer. There was someone nearer in kin to us. As a matter of fact, I want to look at three, three things that I believe, three different characters, if you will, that I believe were nearer kinsmen to us than the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice something too. There may be one or two or three nearer kinsmen, but there's only one redeemer. Amen. There's only one redeemer. So let's look at that. You know, there are some nearer kinsmen, and I believe one of the things, now, now there's one that's a traditional, and, and I believe probably even more, uh, more apt here, more uh, uh, applicable here, in this case, and I'm going, to, I'm going to get to it last. I think Brother Buddy will recognize that. He's probably heard it preached, probably preached it this way before. But I believe before we get to that one, there's a more traditional view of what that nearer kinsman was. I think there's at least two others that we ought to consider. Because I want you to think about it. There, there, are, there were the angels that were really nearer kin to us than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what, what do you mean? Well, in the natural order of creation... The angels are created beings like us. We've got a little more in common. We've got a lot more in common with the angels than we do with the Lord God Almighty himself. They were created beings just like us. Uh, they, were, they were called the sons of God by, by Job. We're called the sons, and, the sons of God in places. 
Um, the angels, we're told, are mentoring, ministering spirits that are sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. They, they actually, uh, in, in, throughout the Old Testament and, and even the New Testament, especially the Old Testament, you see, you, you see more often angels interacting with men than you do the living God in the sense of coming down here and they appear like men, they look like men, they take the form of men. And, and they, are, they are, in a, in a sense, uh, I would say they are nearer kinsmen. They can assume human form even though they're holy creatures. They're holy creatures. And let me say something to you. These angels are powerful, powerful beings. In Psalm 103 and verse 20, the psalmist writes this. He says, Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. That word excel there is the root word, the root Hebrew word for the word hero. Hero. So you've got angels that excel like heroes, like the heroes of the pagan world. You know, Hercules and uh, all those uh, demigods that they had. They were they were heroes. They were they were men of great valor and strength. That's what angels are. They're even greater than that. So they've got power. They've got powers that are greater than ours. In Second Thessalonians chapter one and verse seven. Uh, this is what we read about angels in the New Testament. He says, uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, chapter 1 and verse 7. He says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That word mighty there is the word we use today for dynamite. Dunamis. That's the power. That's it. They got dynamite power. You know, that's a powerful thing. We've had this little uh, stuff, and I forget, I always forget what it's called, that we shoot and it blows up. Uh, tannerite. yeah, tannerite. And uh, yeah, so, you know, that's pretty, it's pretty impressive, but boy, you take dynamite <laughs> and you compare it to tannerite, and you've got something special. I'll tell you, we, we, we played around with that tannerite trying to blow up a, uh, a beaver dam on the pond, and it was fun, you know, and all this, but we still had to get out there and work. But boy, we got a guy to come in, and he blew up some dams, let me tell you. He blew it up with dynamite. And that's what he's talking about here. That's the root word for this, the mighty angels. And look what they're going to be doing. Inflaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They've got some power. <laughs> They've got power, don't they? In Genesis, the 19th chapter, if you go back and look there, the two angels went down to Sodom. Two angels. And, and we're told in that, let me just turn back over there because we're told, uh, it's some good language there. We're told in that uh, chapter in verse 1, it says there came two angels to Sodom at even. And of course they saw Lot there and they saw, they began to talk with him. Uh, and, they, uh, and then in verse 12, it says that uh, the men said unto Lot, Is thou any here besides, son-in-law, thy sons, thy daughters, whatever thou hast in the city, bring them out. For we, the two angels, we will destroy this place <laughs> because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord. Two angels is all it would have taken to destroy Sodom. Now I know later it says the Lord rained down fire and brimstone. But, uh, but all it would have taken was two angels. They tried to come take those angels and they smote them blind. They've got powers that we don't have. They're amazing. <laughs> in, some, in 2 Kings, you can turn there sometime and read it. In the 19th chapter, verses 34 and 35, we read where one angel slew 185,000 Assyrians. 
That's all it took. One angel. You get one angel on your side, you're in pretty good shape. <laughs> you're in pretty good shape, aren't you? They're powerful. Paul was shut up in prison. He was, or uh, he was, or Peter rather, was shut up in prison in the twelfth chapter of Acts. There's no way out of that prison. He had shackles on his hands. So even if he got out, he'd had shackles on his feet and hands. All it took was one angel to shake the prison, and the and the manacles fell off, and Peter was free. That's a powerful being, isn't it? There's no prison in this world that can hold you and I if an angel comes on the scene and lets us out. Maybe we got some hope in these nearer kinsmen that they could redeem us. But I'm sorry to say to you, they're unable. They're unable to redeem us. See, they're created beings too. They're finite creatures. And these angelic beings can never suffer the wrath of God for us. And therefore, they can never bring redemption. They, they're powerful. They're powerful, but the problem is they can't pay the price. They can't pay the price. You know, by creation, man is lower than the angels. They're higher than us. And yet, in Ephesians chapter 3... <laughs> Turn with me over there, and let's just look at this. It's, it's interesting. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, we read, about, we read about the principalities. It says, uh, let's go back to verse, uh, uh, verse 8. Unto me, who am less, this talking about, Paul's talking about himself, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what he's saying to us here? He's saying that... that the church and the preaching that we do in the church informs the angels of the manifold wisdom of God. The, the powers and principalities in heavenly places learn about what we're preaching on by listening to us. By, he says the, the purpose is that, is that, he said, I'm preaching the, the unsearchable riches of Christ to men in the context of the church. And one of the purposes is that the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church or through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Isn't that amazing? These angels are not ever going to be able by their wisdom or their power to save us. As a matter of fact, and we'll come back to this, but I want you to understand that the angels will never sing the redemption song. They're not redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They can't sing the song that we will sing in heaven. They sing all glory and power to God. They, they cry out the glory and majesty of God. They announce the birth of Christ with His glory and His majesty. They don't fall down and worship Him because He saved them by His mighty power. They worship Him because He's God. We worship Him because He's God, but we also can worship because of the redemption. We can sing the redemption song. Hebrews chapter 2, and like I said, we'll come back here. Verse 16 Notice what Jesus, what is said of Jesus. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. 
You know why he did that? Because the angels, are, even though they may be nearer in kin to us, we may have more in common with them than we do with the thrice holy God, and yet they could not save us. They could not redeem. Well, there's another kinsman that's nearer in kin to us, and I'm sorry to say most days I look more like him. And that's a man named Adam. Because you know what? We're the sons and daughters of Adam. We're the children of Adam. <laughs> the law in Leviticus, if you go back and read in chapter 25 of Leviticus sometime about the law of redemption, it says in there that, that a man could redeem himself if he were able, if he'd been sold into slavery, if he'd been sold into bondage. He could redeem himself. But here's the problem. <laughs> the problem is that Adam, our nearer kinsman, because we're just like him, our nearer kinsman plunged us all into spiritual death and sin. You know the story in the garden. I won't turn back there and read it for lack of time. But you go read the second chapter of Genesis sometime. You read about, about verse 17. He says, Adam, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of, God, uh, of good and evil, in that day you'll surely die. And Adam ate it anyway. Chapter 3 is the story of that. How that... Eve was beguiled by the serpent. But don't ever, don't you ever blame your wives. <laughs> don't you ever say, oh, it was the woman's fault. She was beguiled, but Adam wasn't. So who bears the greater sin? You know, if, I, if Eve had eaten and Adam hadn't, then the, Adam's race wouldn't have been plunged into sin. It took Adam willingly and knowingly doing that. And that's what he did. He ate of that fruit knowing the consequence because the law had been given to him Adam plunged us into the condition that we have no longer the ability in our flesh to please God. You know, all you got to do, all you got to do to please God is just perfectly keep the law. That's all you got to do. Keep it to every jot and tittle. That's all you got to do. All you got to do is just keep all those Ten Commandments, keep them outwardly, but hey, while you're at it, you got to keep them inwardly too. That means that not only should can you not steal, but you can't even think about it. You can't even want to. Not only can you not act in jealousy, but you can't even think about it wanting to. Not only can can you can you not commit adultery, but you also have to not ever lust after a woman or a man. You see. The problem we've got is not the law, by the way, and I'll come back to that in a minute. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. We're told the law is spiritual. Yeah. Law's a good thing. <laughs> the law's not bad. The law's a good thing. We want to blame the law, and it's a harsh taskmaster. But guess what? It's spiritual. Our problem is we're carnal. We're carnal. Why do we believe? Why do we believe, as primitive Baptists, that it took Jesus Christ coming down here to save us. It's because we are in such condition that we cannot keep that law. Over in Galatians chapter 3, let's look at that. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse, uh, verse 10. For as many... As are of the works of the law are under the curse. 
For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I, I believe you. I know you. You're pretty good folks. I'm a pretty good guy compared to the guy that went in shooting those kids up down in Florida. I mean, I'm, I'm much better than that, aren't you? I mean, uh, there's people out there we know that don't care about church. They don't go to, I'm better than them. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I try to be here every Sunday. I try to study the word. I try to, you know, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job compared to others. But I got pulled over the other day coming into Allisville. I know that surprises everybody. <laughs> I got pulled over for breaking the law. I got pulled over because I was going too fast. Over in James, the second chapter. James chapter 2 and verse 10. Now remember, I'm a pretty good guy, okay? I hadn't broke into a bank lately. I hadn't hit anybody. I hadn't, you know, hadn't cussed anybody out. Hadn't, hadn't uh, beat up on my wife. And, <laughs> Y'all know that because I'm still living. Uh, but uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't done any really bad. But, but listen to this, okay? Listen to this. You, think about yourself here. Verse 10, chapter 2 of James and verse 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law. I'm not really there now. I'm, I'm, I try and I, I, I do better than some do. <laughs> Don't you? <laughs> Can't you look around you and find somebody that's doing worse than you? You know, of course, the problem I've got is I also look around and find a lot of people doing better than me. <laughs> See, I'm not anywhere close to keeping the whole law. But this is a man that is keeping the whole law. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point. One point. <laughs> he is guilty of all. I did pretty good last week. I didn't break the law. I didn't offend in but one point got pulled over. Guess what? I'm a guilty lawbreaker. I'm guilty of all the law. I am just as guilty before the courts of this land and more importantly before the throne of God, the throne of judgment, as a man, as the one that went in and killed those kids down in Florida as any other person you can name in this world, Hitler, Stalin, I don't care who they are, you and I are just as guilty if we've broken the law in one fashion. Did you ever lie as a child? Maybe you don't lie now. I hope you don't. Did you ever lie to your mom and daddy? <laughs> Did you ever act like something was worse than it was? <laughs> Not me, of course. And, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm sick, it's just, you know, it is that bad, you know. That's, I never... Anyway, the, uh, the, uh, did you ever exaggerate? Did you ever see the problem is we're never as good as we think we are, but we're never as good as God requires us to be. Amen. That's the problem. That's the problem. And it's because of Adam. And guess what? Because of Adam, no, not only can we not redeem ourselves, no one else can redeem us. No one else is able to do it. God looked down through time in Psalm chapter 14 to see if there were any good. <laughs> he tells us in, uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 63, <laughs> I like this, this verse. He says, uh, Isaiah 63 and verse 5, 
He says, uh, uh, he says, I looked and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. He looked around and there was nobody. Job said, there is no daysman. There is no mediator between me and God. Well, we know now that there is one and who it is. But he's saying from a standpoint of nature, from the natural standpoint, there is no days man. There is no, there is no mediator between us and God. There's nobody. You can't come to my aid in this situation. You can't help me. You may be a great person and a good friend, but you can't help me. God said, I looked and there was none to help. I wondered that there was none to uphold. What about somebody with great strength? We know about Samson. Samson's the strongest man that ever lived. Look how he ended up. Having to serve God only by killing himself because of all the sin in his life. Well, what about wisdom? Surely somebody's smart enough to serve the Lord. <laughs> what about Solomon? Wisest man that ever lived. He just descended into idolatry before his death. What about somebody with just the perfect DNA? That's who we're talking about here. Name is Adam. His name is Adam. You don't know why you got cancer today, why you've got uh, diabetes today. You don't know why you're dealing with sicknesses and death today, Parkinson's, whatever it may be. You don't know why that? Because our DNA is corrupted by sin. The man that had the perfect DNA, Adam himself, could not keep the law, and he only had one law to keep. There is no daysman betwixt us. Our near kinsman, Adam, cannot help us. Well, he said, God looked for a man. He said, and I wondered there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury had upheld me. His strength is what brought us to the point. Because there was no man. There was no angel. There was no man. Adam and the angels, while nearer in kin to us, were not able to redeem us. Well, the more traditional view, and I want to talk about that for a few minutes before we close. The more traditional view of this, and, and what I've always seen it as, and what others I've heard preach it as, is who is that near kinsman, the nearer kinsman? Well, most people will tell you, and I agree with this, that it was really <clears throat> could be compared to the law, to the law. Think about it this way. The law was made for man. The law wasn't made for God. The law was made for man. And we're told that the law in 1 Timothy chapter, uh, uh, 1, Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, uh, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and mothers, for manslayers. And he goes on to talk about all that. The point is the law is a good thing. The law was made for man. We're told in Romans 7 and verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. As I said earlier, the problem is not the law. The problem is us. The problem is us. In Romans chapter 7, Paul deals with this, this whole issue uh, all throughout this chapter. In Romans chapter 7, though particularly verse, uh, 
verse 12. He says, Wherefore the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. Was this then which, which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin that it might appear sin, working death in me which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. You know what the purpose of the law was? The purpose of the law was never to save God's people from their sins. The purpose of the law was to, because let me, let me tell you, there was sin before the law was given. Before the law of Moses was given, there was sin. It began in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't the law that was the problem. The law wasn't given to give us a path to heaven. There was sin already. The, the law was given that we might see sin as exceedingly sinful. That's the purpose of the law. And the law is death for man. Peter says in Acts 15, he says, it's a yoke that no man can carry. It's a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. You know, what, what does the law do? <laughs> the law curses, but it never cures. The law punishes, but it never propitiates. The law, it, it, it never blesses, it only bruises us. <laughs> and it only brings fear, but never peace. See, the law can never redeem. In Romans 8 and verse 3, Paul says, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. See, the law could not do it because of the weakness of our flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. See, the law couldn't do this. The law was weak through the flesh. Uh, the law, we're told, is not against the promises of God in the book of Galatians. But he said if there had been a law given which could have brought life, then righteousness should have been by the law. <laughs> but it could not do that. There was a man that, oh boy, he wanted to be saved. And I'll use that term in, in the sense of going to heaven. There was a man that really wanted to obtain eternal life. In Mark, the 10th chapter. <clears throat> but we see in his experience what the law will do to you. We see in Mark, chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, it says, When he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to understand, this is the context, and what he's asking is about going to heaven. He wants eternal life. This is a man who is interested in it. He didn't come you know, just uh, sanering up to him. He didn't just come strolling up. He came running up to him. And he said, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? That's the context in which this is. And the Lord Jesus Christ, being the great teacher that he is, he answered him according to his way of thinking. His way of thinking was, I've got to do something. You know, obviously, we're going to read that he had kept most of most all of the law throughout his life. He still wasn't satisfied. Yeah. He still wasn't satisfied. This is what the law will do to you. Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Now, if that's true... Shouldn't this young man have gone away rejoicing if that indeed is the way to get us to heaven? See, keeping the law, that's what he was talking about. Jesus said, okay, that's what you're thinking. You think you've got to do something? Keep the law. 
Well, he kept all these, but he still wasn't satisfied. He said, Master, these have I observed from my youth. And then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. This is a child of God. I like that. This is somebody Jesus loved. And said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, give to the poor. Thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. You know what Jesus did? He cut him to the heart. He cut him to the heart. See, all the outward stuff he'd kept. But he knew. Jesus knew. And the young man knew. He couldn't keep that on the inside. That's why he was struggling with it. He said, okay. <laughs> it's almost like Jesus is saying, okay, big boy. Go out and sell everything now. and Take care of it. If you really think you've kept the law, you keep the last part of it. You keep it inwardly. And he went away sad because he was too attached to his stuff to follow the Lord. Did he die and go to hell? Absolutely not. Because Jesus loved him. I hope he came to conversion one day and came back and took up his cross and followed the Lord. Because that's the only way he'd ever be happy in this life, ever experience joy. And then Jesus goes on talking to his disciples. They were amazed at all this. And, and finally in verse 27, he gets down to the heart of the matter, which brings us down to the last thing I want to consider, which is this. Jesus looking upon them said, remember now, this is talking about going to heaven. This is talking about eternal life. Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God. Praise God for that Amen. little but right there. Yeah. With men, this is impossible. With the angels, with Adam, with the law, all these nearer kinsmen cannot do one thing to propitiate your sins. Right. They cannot redeem you. They either cannot or they will not. The law could, I suppose, if you could keep it to a jot and to a tittle. But the problem is the law doesn't care about you. The law doesn't care about uh, you personally. It doesn't love you. It's just a dark, uh, cold thing out there that you've got to keep. And all it'll take, it'll take everything you've got. It'll burden you down. That nearer kinsman in Ruth chapter 4 was willing to take everything she had. He was willing to take, he wanted the field. He wanted all her stuff. But he didn't want her. He didn't want her. <laughs> but I tell you what, we got a near kinsman. We got a near kinsman in the Lord Jesus Christ that doesn't just want what we got. In fact, we hadn't got anything he does want. <laughs> all we've got is filthy rags. If the law redeemed us, all we could give it was filthy rags. If the angels redeemed us, all we could give them is filthy rags. If Adam redeemed us, or you could redeem one of, us, one of each other, then all we could give each other is filthy rags. The Lord doesn't want filthy rags. The Lord wants us. The Lord loves His people. Our near kinsmen, you see. While he may, there may have been others nearer, but they weren't willing or they weren't able to redeem us. But the Lord himself, hey, there's one that's better, better than the angels. Over in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4, we're told he was made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He was better than the angels. We're told in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 that he was, there is one who is better than Adam. There's one who's better than Adam. Verse 12, wherefore is by one man. Sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. That's for that all have sinned. That's Adam right there. But let's keep reading. He says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned 
from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Beloved, do you understand? 1 Corinthians tells us in the 15th chapter uh, that there is a one, there's a second Adam. The first Adam could not redeem us. But there is a second Adam that is not only willing, but able. Verse 45, so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. There is one who is better than Adam. (laughs) And in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 5, in verse 17, we read about one who was able to keep the law. He said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Beloved, there is one who kept the law. Praise God. There is one who is not just a near kinsman, but also a redeemer. Praise God that he was near of kin. He took on him not the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham. He was one that was able. He told Ruth, uh, this Boaz, who was a type of, of this, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, he told Ruth, behold, I will do all that thou requirest. And he spoke on the cross, it is finished. Mm-hmm. And he did. And he brought our redemption home. See, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of folks that are kin to us maybe even nearer of kin. But this near kinsman was willing and able to redeem his people from their sins. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye, through his poverty, might be made rich. You do realize, do you not, that we're that little Moabitess woman. We're that little Ruth that dwelled in the land of the enemy who was an enemy of the kingdom of God who ended up poor, in poverty, destitute, hopeless, helpless. But do you also understand that we're no longer called as she was the Moabitess? You know, she went from being Ruth the Moabitess, to Ruth, the wife of Boaz. Do you understand that's where we are? We've gone from being the Moabite, the enemy of God, to being the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. And as we close out this morning, I want you to notice the blessings that this story in Ruth chapter 4 leaves us See, it begins with a hopeless and a helpless and a despairing situation. And it ends with this in verse 13 of Ruth 4. So Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. Isn't that precious? I want to say to you, child of God, there wasn't any question about whether this man was going to take her to wife. And there was no question whether the Lord Jesus Christ was going to take you and I to be his bride. He took Ruth and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, and now we kind of switch back to the earthly plane. We've been talking about heavenly things, but I want you to now notice some earthly blessings that we end up with at the end of this story, this Cinderella story of the Bible. 
When he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thy old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. You know, when you start out in this story, you're thinking, where are we going with this? This sounds so bad. What's, what's happening here? And we realize that it's a great story. It's a Cinderella story of the Bible, as I said. But it's so much more than that. Beloved, this is the story. The story of Ruth is the story of the lineage of Christ. Yeah. The story of Ruth is the story of salvation. The story of Ruth is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Ruth, as I said, has gone. She's gone from being this lonely enemy of God to the greatest love story of all. She's gone from toiling in the fields to resting in the house of Boaz. She's gone from poverty to wealth. She's gone from all these worries about her future to the assurance that she can only have in the presence of her husband, Boaz. She's gone from despair to hope. Notice that verse 10, I like, I like what it says as Boaz is speaking. He says, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife. You notice what she's done? <laughs> the word... The word um, uh, the word Boaz there means a pillar, a bulwark. It means something that is strong, okay? And notice that Ruth has gone from being the husband of the sick man to the husband of the strong man. <laughs> Did you know that we have been wed to the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, we were engaged. We were married to the weaknesses of this world, to the weakness of the flesh. But now we are married to the Lord Jesus Christ, to Boaz, our Boaz, a pillar in the temple of God. And finally, as we continue reading here, just to sort of close it out, listen to verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Phares. You remember the story of Phares? Phares begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram. Ram begat Amenadab. Amenadab begat Nashon. Nashon begat Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz. Boaz begat Obed. Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David. <laughs> I got to turn back over and just, and it's, it's amazing how the Lord just continues to uh, wow us with his strength and his providence. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 2, I want you to hear the law of the Lord. And this, this word I'm going to use is an ugly word today, but it's a, it's a legal term in the word of God. He says, a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. That's one who is illegitimate, one who does not have a father. Even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. I want you to notice something. Phares was one who had no... He, he, was, he was born of the adultery between Judah and Tamar. He was a bastard under the law. He was illegitimate under the law. I want you to count the generations. Phares, Hezron, Ram, Amenadab, 
Nashon, Simon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. Ten generations. God fulfills his own law. Ten generations before David. You know why they didn't have a king? Various reasons, but that's one of them. They didn't have a king for ten generations after this illegitimate child had been born. We see the grace of God. Obed, this son, would bring blessing to Israel and to Bethlehem and to Naomi and to Ruth and to Boaz because his grandson would be one of the greatest types of the Lord Jesus Christ that there's ever been. I love the story of Ruth because it's a story of grace. It's a story of providential care. It's a story of obedience. It's a story of those blessings that we can have in obedience in the kingdom of God. I pray you're as encouraged as I am to stay in the kingdom, to follow the Lord, to be part of His, His tribe, if you will, and serve Him in the way that will bring blessings like Naomi ultimately experienced. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.